I w- <clears throat> excuse me, I'd just like to reiterate that this morning I'm beginning a new uh, series. Uh, it is going to be centering on one another passages in the Word of God. There are 59 one another such passages in the Scripture. I don't know that we're going to look at all of them, but uh, we are going to be focusing on these one another passages. As I said uh, tonight, uh, we're going to hear a testimony from Clay Rebert, and then next Sunday I'm going to be continuing with our study of Matthew 24. So we're flipping evening and morning. Uh, we'll probably be using overhead uh, for a good part of this series. I'm using that in replace of uh, the PowerPoint in place of the handouts uh, that we normally do on Sunday night. So Sunday morning is going to feel more like Sunday night, and Sunday night is going to feel a little more like Sunday morning in the uh, weeks that lie ahead. And then we'll go back to the previous uh, arrangement after we're done this particular series. But uh, this morning, we begin looking at these one another passages. And as we think about the one another passage in scriptures, at the forefront of the one another passages is the admonition to love one another. There are numerous verses that teach us that we are to love one another. John 13, 34. A new commandment I give to you, that you love one another, even as I have loved you, and that you also love one another. John fifteen twelve. This is my commandment, that you love one another. First Thessalonians 4, 9. Now as to love of the brethren, you have no need for anyone to write to you, for you yourselves are taught by God to love one another. First Peter 1, 22. Since you have, in obedience to the truth, purified your souls for a sincere love of the brethren, fervently love one another from the heart. 1 John 3.11 For this is the message which we have heard from the beginning, that you should love one another. 1 John 3.23 And this is his commandment, that we believe in the name of his Son, Jesus Christ, and love one another just as he commanded us. 1 John 4, 7. Beloved, let us love one another, for love is from God. And everyone who loves is born of God and knows God. 1 John 4, 11. Beloved, if God so loved us, we also ought to love one another. 1 John 4, 12. No one has beheld God at any time. If we love one another, God abides in us and his love is perfected in us. 2 John 1, 5. And now I ask you, lady, not as writing to you a new commandment, but the one which we have heard from the beginning, that we would love one another. Now, as you can see, there are numerous, numerous references in the New Testament of our duty and responsibility of loving one another. And these passages, they are nuanced. They have different particular applications of what it means to love one another and the importance and significance of it. But this morning, we are going to get a background to these one another passages and why they are so important to us, especially in the day in which we live. America is characterized by a radical individualism. America is characterized by radical individualism. There is a book 
<clears throat> that uh, I'm going to be referring to this morning uh, that was written by Joseph H. Hellerman. It's entitled, When the Church Was a Family. When the Church Was a Family. And the importance of family and community in the understanding of the church. He says this, and I quote, I suggest that it is the unique orientation of Western culture, especially contemporary American society, that best explains our propensity to abandon rather than work through the awkward and painful relationships we often find ourselves in. Social scientists have a label for the pervasive cultural orientation of modern American society that makes it so difficult for us to stay connected and grow together in community and with one another. They call it a radical individualism. What this amounts to is simple enough. We in America have been socialized to believe that our own dreams, goals, and personal fulfillment ought to take precedence over the well-being and the connections we have with others in both our families and our churches, end quote. He goes on to say, and I quote, according to popular American evangelicalism, the church has nothing to do with salvation. God's group, the church, only comes into the picture as a sort of utilitarian aid to individual growth in the Christian faith, end quote. In other words, what he is saying is that in modern evangelicalism, the only purpose for the church to exist is to help me to grow as an individual in my personal relationship to Jesus Christ. That is the role and purpose of the church. People come to church in order that they might grow in their individual and personal relationship to Jesus Christ. In America, this faith thing is a private thing. It is between God and the individual. It has nothing to do with anyone else. It's all about the individual's personal faith in Jesus Christ. He goes on to say, and I quote, We have removed from the gospel what the Bible views as central to the sanctification process, namely commitment to God's group. In doing so, we invariably set ourselves up for the relational shipwrecks that happen in the lives of countless Sunday attenders who opt for individual satisfaction over loyalty to God's group. After all, I can leave my church or my marriage and my personal Savior will happily accompany me wherever I go. End quote. So the point of this morning's message is that foundational to understanding the relationship that we enjoy to one another is understanding the gospel. Understanding the gospel. The gospel itself directly affects our relationship to God and to one another. We can't love God without loving one another. And we can't love one another without first loving God. Loving God necessitates and enables our loving one another. When people come to faith, they have a new relationship to God 
and to their fellow believers. This morning, we're going to consider the gospel presentation that I wrote on our website. We're going to do that because you will notice that the gospel presentation that that, uh, appears on our website focuses on two relationships. Our relationship with God and our relationship to one another. And you cannot separate those two ideas. Why is that? Because the gospel itself is all about our relationship to God and to one another. All too often in American individualism, the gospel is presented solely in terms of our relationship to God. We've cut the gospel in half. It's about a person's personal relationship to God. About having their needs met. About their going to heaven. About their having a right relationship with God. And says nothing at all about God's people. In other words, it really doesn't deal with sin in its totality. So this morning, we lay a foundation in the gospel for all these one other passages. So they don't just become mere platitudes. So they aren't just nice little sayings, but they have real significance. So we begin with raising the question, what is the gospel? Again, this is what appears on our website. Um, it's been there for probably a couple of years now. There have been a couple of tweaks that I've just made recently, but uh, this basically is the presentation that's been there for a couple of years. So what is the gospel? The gospel is literally good news. Specifically, it is the good news of a Savior. The Savior is Jesus Christ, God's Son, who came into this world to save us from sin. Luke 2, 10 to 11 says this. And the angel said to them, Fear not, for behold, I bring you good tidings of great joy, which shall be for all the people. For unto you is born this day in the city of David a Savior, who is Christ the Lord. That's the simple part. But now, what is sin? What is sin? Sin stems from a failure to love God with all my heart, soul, and mind. And sin is a failure to love others the way that we love ourselves. At the heart of sinfulness is selfishness. It is living a life for ourselves rather than solely living a life for God's glory and the well-being of others. That is sin. I think that many people, if you would ask them what is sin, would answer that sin is disobedience. Or sin is rebellion against God. That's okay, but it's not far enough. It really doesn't encompass what is the core root problem with sin. At the heart of sin is self-centeredness. Focusing on ourselves. It is selfishness in relationship to God and in relationship to one another. Notice what the Word of God says in Matthew chapter 22. We used it for our call to worship this morning. Teacher, what is the great commandment in the law? 
He said to them, You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, and with all your mind. This is the great and first commandment. And a second is like it. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. Now these words. On these two commandments depend all the law and the prophets. In other words, all of the Old Testament. All that was proclaimed is an extension of these two commandments. Everything that the Bible has to teach is an unfolding of what it means to love the Lord our God with our heart and our soul and our mind, and what it means to love one another even as we love ourselves. Everything can be drawn back into those two main ideas, according to the book of Matthew chapter 22. Everything is an outpouring of that. So at the very heart of sin is this failure to love God with all our heart and our soul and our mind, and a failure to love others the way that we love ourselves. All of God's law can be summed up in those two commandments. As we think about the Ten Commandments, the Ten Commandments can be broken down into two parts. The first four commandments of the Old Testament have to deal with our love for God. The second six commandments in the Old Testament, thou shalt not steal, thou shalt not commit adultery, all those commandments have to deal with our relationship to others. The Ten Commandments focus on what does it mean to love God and what does it mean to love others. Our duty to love God cannot be separated from our obligation to love others. And our duty to love others cannot be separated from our duty to love God. We will never love others before we love God, and when we love God, we will not fail to love others. So why do we need to be saved or delivered from our sins? Answer, there are consequences to our sinful disobedience. There is shame, loneliness, and punishment, just to name a few. Let me just pause there. There are consequences to our sinful disobedience. There is shame, loneliness, and punishment, just to name a few. If you ask most people, what is the consequence of sinful disobedience, they will list one. Punishment. Punishment. The wages of sin is death. They will emphasize that without accepting Christ as your Savior, you are going to go to a Christless eternity. You are going to experience punishment. You're going to experience hell. That is true. That is true. That is true. You hear me saying that? That is true. But it's not the whole story. It's not everything that the Bible says about the consequences of sin. It's much broader than that. It's much deeper than that. It's much fuller than that. There are consequences to our sinful disobedience. There is shame, loneliness, and punishment, just to name a few. Because of our sin... Our fellowship with God has been broken. 
Sin destroys relationships. Sin destroys our relationship to God. When Adam and Eve sinned, their fellowship with God was broken. In Genesis 3, 6 and following, it says this, So when the woman saw that the tree was good for food, and then it was a delight to the eyes, and that the tree was to be desired to make one wise, she took of its fruit and ate. And she also gave some to her husband, who was with her, and he ate. Then the eyes of both were opened, they knew that they were naked, and they sewed fig trees together, fig leaves together and made themselves loincloths. And they heard the sound of the Lord God walking in the garden in the cool of the day, and the man and his wife hid themselves from the presence of the Lord God among the trees of the garden. They hid themselves from God. Fellowship was broken. They were ashamed. They saw themselves as naked. They were uncomfortable in the presence of God. They tried to hide from God. That consequence continues on to this very day. John 3.16, a verse that probably most of you can quote, says, For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten Son, that whosoever believeth in him should not perish but have everlasting life. But it goes on to say, For God sent not his Son into the world to condemn the world, but the world through him might be saved. And this is the condemnation, that men loved darkness rather than light because their deeds were evil. And they hated the light, and they did not come to the light lest their deeds be reproved. Mankind shuns the presence of God where it appears, for it reveals their sinfulness. They are out of fellowship with God. But what I want to emphasize this morning is the second half of the gospel. And that is, not only does sin break our fellowship with God, but sin breaks our fellowship with one another. Not only has sin alienated us from God, but sin alienates us from our fellow mankind. Genesis 3.6. God said this to the woman after she sinned. To the woman he said, I will surely multiply your pain in childbearing. In pain you shall bring forth children. And now these words, your desire shall be for your husband and he will rule over you. That is a negative. That's not a positive. That is a horrific statement. That is not a joyful statement. It is a statement that speaks of the consequence of their sinfulness. Your desire will be to your husband. That is not a good desire. That's a bad desire. The same word appears later in the chapter referring to sin has a desire to reign over you. Okay, so the desire of the husband is that no longer is Eve going to be satisfied in her role as helpmate to Adam. No longer is she going to rejoice in this unique and wonderful privilege that she has, but rather now she wants to be the head. Now she wants to be in his place. Now she is going to want to exert her influence and be the leader. There's going to be a struggle. And it says, and he shall rule over you. That, again, is a negative context. Instead of a loving, caring leadership, now Adam is going to be harsh. 
Now Adam is going to be self-centered. Now Adam is going to make decisions that are not in the best interest of Eve, but are in the best interest of himself. His loving care is not going to be manifest because of his sin. Sin destroys this marital relationship. Sin caused problems between Cain and Abel. That's why in 1 John, when it's talking about loving one another, it brings up Cain and Abel and how they cannot love one another because sin breaks fellowship, commitment to our fellow human beings. Cain killed Abel. And if you remember... When Cain was confronted by God and asked the question in order to bring conviction, where is your brother? Cain's answer was, am I my brother's keeper? Am I my brother's keeper? It's an interesting statement. Am I responsible for watching over and protecting my brother? Is that any duty of mine? Is that any responsibility of mine? Am I my brother's keeper? It goes back to Genesis in the beginning where it says that Adam and Eve were to till and keep the garden. They were keepers. Their responsibility was to watch over all that God had made and they were to protect it. When God made this world, it was good. Everything he made was good. At the end of each day, he could look at it and say, it was good, it was good, it was very good. And Adam and Eve were given this responsibility now to keep this place in its good condition. Watch over it. Till it. Develop it. Protect it. Keep the garden. So Cain asked the question, am I my brother's keeper? The answer is yes, he was. He was. He failed miserably. Rather than protect his brother, he killed him. Rather than to promote righteousness, he promoted unrighteousness. Why? It's all because of their sin. Sin ruins our relationship to God and sin ruins our relationship to one another. Sin will separate us from God for all eternity. 2 Thessalonians 1.9 says this, They will suffer the punishment of eternal destruction away from the presence of the Lord. That's usually found in any gospel presentation, something of that effect that a person is going to be separated from God for all eternity future if they do not repent and come to know the Lord Jesus Christ as their Savior. But not only will sin separate us from God for all eternity, sin will also separate us from each other for all eternity. Look at Luke 16, 26. This is in the incident with Lazarus and the rich man 
Lazarus dies. Excuse me, the rich man dies. Goes to paradise. And there's this conversation. Abraham speaking, besides all this, between us and you, there is a great chasm has been fixed in order that those who would pass from here to you may not be able. And none may cross from there to us. There is going to be an eternal separation, not only from God, but from God's people. Anyone who doesn't know the Lord is going to be separated from God and this morning's focus and God's people. But God, in his love and mercy, reaches out to us. He invites us to have a new relationship to himself, a relationship that the Bible likens unto a wholesome relationship between a father and a child. In this relationship, God loves, cares, and provides for us, and we seek to love and honor and be obedient to him. That's usually what's emphasized, so I don't have those verses up there. But now this, this results in a new relationship to God's people, wherein now we are brothers and sisters in Christ and love one another. John thirteen thirty five. By this, all people will know that you are my disciples. If you can bring that up. It's there now? Okay. By this, all people will know that you are my disciples if you have love one for another. Love one for another. How does Jesus save us from our sins? Jesus makes this new relationship possible. Jesus, in absolute love for God and for us, Again, the truncation. There are many who speak of the atonement solely in terms of God's love for the Father. And the reason that he died for the sins is because of his love and obedience to the Father. That is true. But it's not the whole story. He also loved us. In John 13, at the Passover meal... The night before Jesus Christ died, it says this, having loved his own that were in the world, he loved them unto the end. He loved them completely. He gave himself willingly for them. He loved the Father and he loved us. You can't separate the two. And the reason he loved us it's because the Father loved us. John 17. He came into the world to save those that God the Father had given to him. Jesus, in absolute love for God and for us, unselfishly, key word, okay, because we're talking about what sin is. Sin is selfishness. So as you think about the righteousness that Jesus provided for us when he died on the cross, was it his selflessness? He wasn't selfish. Philippians 3, let this mind be in you, which is also in Christ Jesus our Lord, who thought not robbery to be equal with God, meaning he did not prize that as the ultimate possession, 
but took upon himself the form of a servant. He became willing to be a servant. So, but voluntarily experienced, uh, unselfishly thought not of himself, but voluntarily experienced the consequences of our sinfulness through his life and death on the cross. That is, he took our shame. That's part of the consequence. Our shame. He was mocked. He was ridiculed. That isn't inconsequential to his sufferings. That isn't anecdotal. That isn't adjacent to his sufferings. It isn't just that he died on the cross, but the mocking and the ridicule is a part of what sin brings. Sin brings mockery. Sin brings ridicule. Sin brings abandonment. It is why all the disciples fled from him. Because sin destroys relationships. And his relationship was destroyed with his disciples. And he bore that. He put up with that. He endured that. So he endured forsakenness by God and others. And suffered the full punishment that our sin deserved. All this was accomplished so that we would have an entirely new relationship to God and others. God didn't save us just to fix the problem between ourselves and God. God saved us to fix our problems between ourselves and God and ourselves and others. He died for the whole shebang. He died to deal with all the consequences of sin. The good news is that Jesus conquered sin and death by physically rising from the dead. He, descended, he ascended into heaven and was welcomed in the very presence of God the Father. In trusting what God has done for us through his life, death, and resurrection, we experience complete forgiveness from God. Our relationships are transformed. We enjoy a never-ending fellowship with God, both in this life and for all eternity. Likewise, we have a new fellowship with other Christians now and for eternity. It isn't just that I go to heaven or that I live in this new heaven and new earth. The thought is we go to heaven. And we live in this new heaven and this new earth. It's not just about me. And it's not just about you. It's about us. And what God intended for all eternity past. That man would live together, dwell together in harmony, in peace, in unity. In what God had intended for Adam and Eve to multiply and to inhabit this earth is going to be realized in the new heaven and the new earth. It's about our relationship to God and to one another. 1 Thessalonians 4, 13. You probably know it well. But here again, the emphasis, now in this passage, 
is that we aren't simply going to be with the Lord. When I say simply, don't want to minimize that by any means. It's a huge deal that we are with the Lord. But it's amazing that the scripture also makes it a huge deal that we're with one another. 1 Thessalonians 4.13 But we don't want you to be uninformed, brothers, about those who are asleep, meaning those who have died, that you may not grieve as others who have no hope. So, for since we believe that Jesus died and rose again, even so, through Jesus, God will bring with him those who have fallen asleep. For this we declare to you by a word from the Lord, that we who are alive, who are left unto the coming of the Lord, will not precede those who have fallen asleep. For the Lord himself will descend from heaven with a cry of command, with the voice of the archangel, with the trumpet of God, and the dead in Christ will rise first. Then we who are alive, who are left, will be caught up together with them in the clouds. The emphasis is that when Christ comes, he will bring with him all those who have died in the faith. When Christ returns, he doesn't return alone. He returns with Moses. He returns with Abraham. He returns with David. He returns with my father. He returns with my mother. He returns with your loved one. If you know the Lord Jesus Christ, if they knew the Lord Jesus Christ as their Savior. But notice, people, that this isn't simply about our families. It's not just that he returns with my mom and my dad, but he returns with Jack Herb's dad. He returns with your dad, your mom, your sister, your brother, and those that we don't know personally, but all our brothers and sisters in Christ. He returns with. And that's the most important thing. If you remember a few weeks ago, we were working through Matthew. And there was the discussion of the resurrection. And they asked Jesus the question. The Pharisees did, trying to trick him. They said to him, if there's the resurrection, then he talked about a man who had a wife and uh, he dies. Then another marries her. 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 She's had all these wives. Then it says, in the resurrection, whose wife will it be? If you remember that sermon, the answer was, you err not knowing the scriptures. For you do not marry, nor are you given in marriage. And I took that as an opportunity to say what I'm now trying to impress upon you in a much greater way is that when we are in the presence of God, the relationship that we enjoy to each other is going to be closer, more intimate, more uh, deep than any relationship that we have known in this present age. When we are with Christ in the new heaven and new earth, we're going to be closer to each other than we've ever been to a mother or a father, a sister, a brother, or a husband or a wife. We are going to have a perfect fellowship 
and union with each other. So we long for that day when not just simply are we with Christ, but we are with others as well. Instead of the selfishness that once ruled our hearts, we now seek to honor and serve God and to be a blessing to others. In short, we extend to others the love and forgiveness that we ourselves have experienced from God through the Lord Jesus Christ. 2 Corinthians 5, 18-20. All this is from God, who through Christ reconciled us to himself and gave us the ministry of reconciliation. That is, in Christ God was reconciling the world to himself, not counting their trespasses against them, and entrusting to us the message of reconciliation. Therefore we are ambassadors for Christ, God making his appeal through us. We implore you on behalf of Christ, be reconciled to God. God wasn't interested in just saving us. He was interested in saving us and others. And so he's given us a responsibility to take that message of reconciliation to others. For our purpose this morning, we focus on the new relationship that we have one to another. Ephesians 4.32. Be kind to one another, tenderhearted, forgiving one another, as God in Christ forgave you. Act in accordance with the way in which you were treated. First to our fellow believer and then to all mankind. Do good to all men, especially those who are of the household of the faith. So how do I trust Jesus to be my Savior? If you desire to trust in Jesus as your Savior, we offer the following prayer as an example. It is not a formula, but it is a representation of what it means to trust in Jesus as Savior from sin. Dear God, here's the prayer. I know that I'm a sinner and in need of a deliverer. I need forgiveness for having failed to love you with all my heart, soul, and mind, and for failing to love others in the way that I love myself. I know that my sins have alienated me from you and others. I want you to deliver me from my sinful self-centeredness. I desire a truly loving relationship with you as my father and others as my brothers and sisters. I trust in Jesus and Jesus alone as the only one who can save me from my sins. You see how different that is from the way in which most people perceive what the gospel is. For most people, it's about me not going to hell. And other people are irrelevant. Being saved has nothing to do with anybody else. It has everything to do with everyone else because it was God's intention to redeem a people unto himself to restore a sinful mankind to this righteous people that would dwell together in unity and love for eternity future. That's the good news. That's the gospel. And so today, we can't live our lives in isolation. We can't ignore the one another passages. We can't say that the only reason the church exists is to help me in my personal relationship to Jesus. It's all about me. Whether I'm getting fed or not getting fed. Whether I like the music or I don't like the music. Whether I feel comfortable or I don't feel comfortable. It's about us. 
And sometimes the message may not be directly applicable to you, but it may be very applicable to someone else. Maybe you don't like the particular song we sang this morning, but somebody else made love with the song that we sang this morning. We gather together to provoke one another unto love and good works. We find in the Word of God that the Bible teaches that the church is indispensable. You can't be a good Christian by living in isolation. Forsake not the assembling of yourselves together, as the manner of some is. So says the book of Hebrews. So what's next? Now that you have received Christ as your Savior, we encourage you to develop that personal relationship to Jesus Christ. We grow in grace and knowledge of the Lord Jesus Christ through Bible reading, prayer, and worshiping with others. We also encourage you to develop a love for your fellow believers through an active participation in their lives and mutual service for the Lord by participating in a Bible-believing church. We at the Lebanon Bible Fellowship Church would be honored to assist you in being a follower of the Lord Jesus Christ. Please contact me. I would love to hear from you. Blessings by name. That's who and what we are. That's what we believe the gospel to be. That is the good news that Christ meets our sin problem. Sin that has destroyed our relationship with God and sin that has destroyed our relationship with each other. That's why the gospel is needed for marriages, for husbands and wives who don't know the Lord Jesus Christ as their Savior. That's why you should only marry a person who is a believer if you're a believer, because it's going to stagnate you. It's going to prohibit you from living out all of these mandates of the Word of God. There's relevance here. It's why there are murders. It's why there is robbery. It's why there is all of the societal ills of this world. Christ came to change us. In our relationship to himself and in our relationship to each other. That's the gospel. And that's the church. The church is to be the foretaste, just a small sense of what it's going to be to be with God's people for all eternity. You know, we, we go to that passage, we love it, where it says there's going to be no more tears, there's going to be no more dying, there's going to be no more stealing, there's going to be no other, all these things. It's because people are going to be transformed. It's because we're going to be sinless, and we're going to be living with people who are sinless. And it's going to be amazing. And life now can be amazing if we live more sin-free. If we practice more righteousness, if we are less selfish and more giving, and the essence of the gospel is giving, the essence of sin is selfishness. 
The essence of the gospel is giving. For God so loved the world that he gave. Christ gave himself for us. The transformation is a life that moves from taking to giving. Giving to God and giving to one another. I look forward to this series as we look at this righteous way to live in our one another relationships that are born out of the gospel. The Holy Spirit has brought us together, made us brothers and sisters in Christ. Now we have this unique opportunity to show forth the power and grace of God in our lives and the way in which we live before one another by his enablement, by his power, by his grace. May God help us. Let's pray. Oh God, help us to walk with you and help us in our walk with one another. Oh Lord, give us of your grace, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Brother, if you would come. Thank you, Pastor, for your teaching us this morning and 